Hello, welcome to I Love Rock and Roll. I'm Ken Krantz, and uh, no chip today, but returning as co-host, um, my good friend, hilarious comedian, Max Antonucci. What's going on, Max? What's going on, Ken? Thanks again for having me. I love doing this show. I know I, you. One of my favorite podcasts. Like I said last time, it used to be my favorite, but then I started listening to a few more podcasts, but this is still <laughs> one of my favorites. We're still one of your three favorite out of the three. <laughs> yes. It's us and Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited. I want to get right into introducing our guest and our topic today. Our guest is a musician, drummer, songwriter, producer, Billy Amendola. Billy, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm honored to be here with you guys. Thank you so much uh, for having me. Yes. Well, um, I was when uh, when we started talking about doing this topic, I was told that you were the guy that we had to speak to about this. Um, <laughs> and we're, well, I, I don't know. I don't know about that, but. Who doesn't love speaking about the Beatles? You know, I mean, everyone turns into kind of like a little kid, no matter how old you are, when, you know, it comes to talking about the Beatles and the fact that they're still around and relevant today and on the charts and still out there. And it, it's it's pre it's pretty amazing. You know, it just proves that I'm not crazy and, and all Beatlemaniacs are not crazy, you know, uh, because uh, the magic is still still going on. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And that uh, we're we're talking about the Get Back documentary today. And um, I I was blown away by how good this documentary that I could just watch 10 hours of these four guys just sitting around chatting <laughs> and and working out take after take of songs. It was uh, I, it's easily one of the best rock documentaries uh, I've ever watched. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's funny because back in the day, I was fortunate to, ha to have Let It Be on a VHS tape because they had released it like sometime in the 80s mm -hmm. on VHS. And um, somebody had gotten it for me as a Christmas present. And I think, you know, they paid like $200 for it or $150 for it. But I always had that film. So throughout the years, I kind of you know, I would show it to friends and I was always, and then when, of course, when YouTube came around, then everybody saw the rooftop and, you know, everybody saw what was happening, but to see all the extra footage and, it, and to see that movie in a completely different light. I mean, Peter Jackson, the fact that he, you know, he did such an amazing job, but the fact that he had access to that vault with those tapes and all that unseen footage that no one has ever seen, it's just pretty, it's, it's incredible. And it's the blueprint for every single band in the world. So as, as a band, you know, being in a band and, and, and anyone being in a studio, you're getting to watch firsthand, like you're a fly on the wall of the greatest band, probably the greatest band in the history of our, of our time, write, create, record, and then perform an album. It, it's just, it's, 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 ama it's amazing. It's incredible. Right. And in the, in the space of three weeks. Yeah, that's that's what that's what's crazy about it is that it's only over the span of three weeks. And you're like, oh, my God, all this happened within that time, which is so mind boggling. Uh, 
And then also, I mean, I've I've been a Beatles fan for a very long time. Uh, I'm a little younger than you guys, but I'm a huge fan. And uh, I always heard that there was so much animosity between the band throughout these sessions and that everything was so tense throughout the whole session. But when you watch it, you see that they still love each other and they're still getting along. And of course, there's tense moments, but... I was always led to believe that these sessions were even harder than the, uh, the white album sessions. Yeah. That's yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Max. Cause I thought the same thing. It's like you, you heard that they were so contentious and then you watch yeah. it. And for the most part, I don't know if it's like that polite English thing, but there's, there's no major dust ups. And for the most part through a lot of it, it looked like, you know, with the exception of uh, George, uh, it looked like they were having a lot of fun through through a lot of it. Yeah. And even when George uh, and not to get ahead of ourselves here, but even when George quit the band briefly, he's just like, OK, I think I'm going to leave now. I think I'm <laughs> done with the Beatles. And that was it. Like, I thought it was this huge blow up. I had always read that, like, Yoko Ono ate some of his biscuits and he flipped out. Like that was always the rumor I had heard. And he was just like, okay, I guess I'm going to leave now. See you later. It it was the most polite quitting of a job <laughs> you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. I mean, those guys, there was a special bond that the four of them had, you know, and they've said it a million times themselves in interviews. I I was fortunate enough that to, to to actually speak to Ringo about certain certain things. Um, they had you know they they were they were brothers. They, they were really like they they were family. They were brothers. They grew up together. They, the four of them were, were the only ones that went through that period of Beatlemania and that craziness. And you can't plan what's going to happen. Nobody you know no, they you know nobody could plan anything like that. So they the, the fact that they stayed grounded, they were able to keep each other grounded because, you know, Frank Sinatra, Elvis, everybody, it was only one person. So everybody was, yes, yes, yes. They didn't want to be fired. They, you know, they they had Mal, Mal Evans, who, by the way, to me, Mal Evans was the star of this movie because he really proved the title, The Fifth Beatle, because he was there from day one. And, you know, of course, the tragic ending that that was so sad, but he he was he dedicated his life to them and they all loved him and he loved them, of course. But it was always Mal, get me this Mal, hold my lyrics, get Mal to hold this Mal, write down the lyrics. I mean, Mal, get me toast. I mean, it was really. And then talk about polite when Ringo's on the roof. He, he, he goes up and he, he looks at the drums and, and he goes, Mal. You nailed me drums in the wrong place. <laughs> Very calmly. You know, you know, anybody else would have been yelling at the road. You know, they would have been like pissed off that, you know, he was just like. And then Ringo had told me a story, which, I mean, it's been known, but he personally told me a story about when they played the Washington concert. And there's a shot that you could see. He's looking for Mal because they had to turn the drum riser around because it was, you know, the, the stage was was revolving. You know, they wanted to face everybody. And at one point, Ringo's down and you can see he's looking for Mal and he goes to move it himself. And then he, he goes, he stands up and he kind of holds his back as if, oh, my God, my back. 
And then you see Mal coming over, running over to help him turn it. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's like, it, it was just great to see Mal get, you know, his due and, and, and you know, a little light sh- shone on him. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he came off. He came off very well. And you, you could tell how much uh, everybody loved him. I, and I, the politeness, like you said, the yes. politeness, you see how, how mellow Ringo was to sell him. Anybody else would have yelled at him. You know, they would have said, you know, what, what's wrong with you? It's 30 years. You're going to learn how to set up my drum. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a few things that I was uh, surprised at in uh, watching this. Um, I, first off, I thought that uh, I thought Ringo came off the best out of all the Beatles, and uh, absolutely, uh, he just, you know, when when the tension was mounting between George and Paul, Paul and John, uh, it seemed like Ringo was sort of like the stabilizing force for all of them. Um, which you know, I, well, Ringo, you know. I've always said that Ringo was the ultimate studio musician. I've been saying that for, for years. You know, he doesn't, we all know he doesn't get the recognition um, that he deserves because, you know, he makes everything look so simple until you try to actually play those parts. But people don't realize he created those parts. They're so musical. So, you know, the people who get it, you know, get it. Some of, uh, you know, some people will think, you know, because he's not a flashy Neil Peart type drama, you know, that that's what they want to see, but that's all well and good, you know, but, you know, let's face it, Neil Peart would have been fired in, in, if he was in the Beatles in two days, but, you know, Ringo, he was playing with three of the greatest songwriters of all time. Yeah. And he sat there, he was their drum machine. He just sat there, took it all in, listened. And then when he did go to play, he had his part ready of what he thought. And of course, everybody wanted to, you know, throw in this, but he was just right there all the time and most drummers i i i, I could I, you know I'm, I'm a blame to this myself when you're in the studio and you're waiting for everybody to get together you're constantly like tapping on stuff you you know you're making noise you're like come on let's go ringo just sat there did his job and did it perfectly yeah yeah he he was he was a total pro through the whole thing um the other takeaway that i had was the 180 that I did on Yoko and um, seeing, I mean, I've, I've sort of, I think, I think public opinion sort of been changing on her throughout the years. But um, when, when you see her in the studio interacting with them and uh, you just saw two people really in love and she wasn't doing anything. She wasn't doing, she didn't break that band up. No, no, you know, she, she was, they were, they were on their way to breaking themselves up. It was just, it it had to have been way too much pressure, way too much fame. And, and I I mean, I think it had to have been inevitable. And business, you know, business, business gets in the way of why bands break up. It's not, it's not people that break up bands. It's the business part of it. If, if the Beatles weren't, arguing over who was going to take over control, you know, with, with, with Alan Klein and the Eastman's, you know, it wouldn't have never gotten nasty. The Beatles would have just went their separate ways for a while. Everybody would have did their solo records and then they would have came back because yeah. they missed each other and they would have continued to go, you know, but as always in a band, um, 
and, and, and it's business. It's any business, but you know, we can only, I can only relate to this because it's the music business. You know, once business comes into it and millions of dollars and who's going to take control and who's going to be in charge, you know, that's when it all starts to fall apart. And, you know, Yoko at the time, she just happened. I wish she smiled a little bit more, you know, but I think <laughs> she wasn't smiling, not because she was unhappy. She she was very shy. You know, she 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 did like, you know, she probably in her in her own head at the time thought, oh, I don't know if I should be here. Why? Why am I even here? You know, it's like but John wanted her there. Right. And Ringo said it. he was the first one to say it in a documentary. You know, if if they were in love the way they so so much in love, why wouldn't he want someone next to him at all times if that's what they want? You know, that's yeah. the way it was. It, it, it was it was different times. So, yeah, Yoko did not break up the Beatles. No, nobody broke up the Beatles. And I love that clip of Linda and Yoko having that moment when yes. they're, they're laughing and, and having, you know, private joke. Yes. Yeah. And I, I loved what Paul said about uh, having the foresight to know when when he said, you know, imagine 50 years from now, people think we broke up because Yoko's sitting on an amp. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. It, it, it's, I heard an interview with John one, you know, right before the film came out on the Beatle channel on Sirius. And you would it was so eerie. You would almost think that he was being interviewed that day because he was talking about a book. He was talking about, well, maybe one day there'll be a book and there'll be a whole documentary. And, you know, and it, it was eerie because it sounded like he was being interviewed that day doing his promotion for Get Back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. Magic. It's just all magic. And then, you know, even the way the way it ends, you know, I mean, the ultimate ending you can't plan that you know that was that 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 they didn't know what they were going to do how they were going to end it so the universe everything kind of just fell into place they went up on the roof yeah let's just go on the roof and they didn't know till that morning that they were even going to go up on the roof some of them still didn't think it was a good idea and but the beatles you know the fact that they did that the magic of them going back into their heads of the cavern days at lunchtime mm -hmm. and playing. I mean, that you can't plan that. I mean, they didn't, you know, they, that, after they realized what they were doing, you could almost see in their faces, they're having flashbacks. I mean, the cold was kind of, you know, it was a little too cold. So they were shivering, but they started to actually, they all had their shit together. I mean, they all knew their parts. They, they obviously someone else, that's the recordings, the actual recordings on the album of, of some of those tracks of some of those uh, songs. So they got themselves together. And then to have Maureen Ringo's, you know, late wife up there who was at the cavern and experienced that. It, it, it's just full circle. It's just incredible. I mean, the only thing that would have you know, I, I went to go see it with a friend uh, in IMAX and it was incredible the sound. And you really felt like you were on the roof. But the fact that it went full circle like that, it was just, it was magic. You, you can't plan something like that. And then Paul even says, thanks, Mo. You know? Yeah. And I'm sure he said that at the cavern. And it's funny because I always thought he said, let's smoke. 
That's what I always thought my whole life. That's what I thought he said. And then it was like, oh, he's thanking Maureen. I get it. And then, of course, the ultimate John. I mean, how, you know, his quick wit and humor and on behalf of the group and myself, you know, yeah. I hope we pass the audition. I mean, what a way to end. I mean, you can't plan. That's the magic of the Beatles. Yeah. It was uh, watching the rooftop thing, though, watching the rooftop show. I, I was... Can you imagine uh, being one of the dorks that called the police <laughs> on the Beatles, on the, the Beatles playing a rooftop and, and you're mad because your your bakery has to hear the Beatles music coming through? Yeah. One of the best parts was you'd see like a bunch of older people in the streets and they're like, oh, we think this is very fine. This is great. Like you wouldn't expect them. You would have thought that they were the ones calling the cops. And they're like, oh, I think it's very nice that they're putting on a concert for everybody. Yeah. But I mean, but can, can you imagine just, like just <laughs> being that Or, big, being or that imagine being dork. one of those cops, you know, imagine being one of those cops that you have to go up there. And there was like one of them who clearly looked like he was like, yeah, I'm going to stop this. And the other one's kind of just like hanging back. Like, I don't want any part of this. Yeah. <laughs> and they didn't know they didn't know that they were going to that they were being filmed down in the in the lobby, which was pretty yeah. funny. You know, George, George Martin. I mean, you know, obviously he knew. So you see when he walks in, he kind of like waves to the camera, you know, and, and gives a little smirk. But the fact that they had, you know, and, and talking about cameras, to me, one of the most touching things in the film was when they had the camera in the flower pot. Yes. After George came back. I mean, that. Of course, it's against the law, and that's why I guess no one heard of it until they gave the okay. But you can hear how sincere they were about realizing the way they were treating George, you know. And Paul was, he was the worker. He was the, you know, everybody was getting lazier and lazier. So Paul, of course, somebody had to take the reins. And yes. that's, I give him credit for that. But, you know, Paul being Paul, sometimes he takes it a little bit too far. And, you know, he wants things done a little too fast or his way and his songs. But, you know, somebody had to do it. So he gets credit for that. But you can see why George at that point felt the way he felt, you know, because they're bringing his equipment from his studio over and they're doing a version of All Things Must Pass. Now, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it is so beautiful. The little bit that you hear, the harmonies, everything. I mean, and then they leave it off for Abbey Road as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you had to understand why at that point George felt the way he felt. And then George was the one who was playing with Eric Clapton and, and uh, Delaney and Bonnie and, and producing records, Jackie Lomax and, and Badfinger and a whole bunch of people. So he was outside of the box from, from the Beatles. So he was used to playing with other musicians. And I think that kept his confidence, you know, obviously. And uh, he just had enough. But then when Billy Preston comes, again, magic. I yeah. mean, they knew that they knew him from back in the day. And of course, he was friends with with with, with George because um, they had been working together. But once Billy Preston came, you know, everybody kind of like, you know, stepped up a notch. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It altered the it altered the chemistry just enough um i'm glad you mentioned that about all things must pass because it's it was 
of course George wanted to quit. Like if you can't get that song, and then it's it's curious too because you look at the songs of his that they took for for the album. You know, for you, I mean, it's a great song, but he, nothing on that, nothing that made, uh, nothing that made the cut was better than All Things Must Pass, and and they dismissed it pretty quickly outright. Yeah. They were they were like All Things Must Hard Pass. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, it, it, that 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 was a little, you know, that 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 was sad. So you know, and and each of them went, you know, Ringo went through his phase during the White Album, and you know, um, John went through his phase. They all went through their phases of where it's it's like you know when you do anything repetitively and 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 you you know it's the same thing. You you know you want a little bit of change, and change you know is hard. And there's four of them, so it's not so easy, you know. But, you know, it, it all came down to them being them and then doing their job, which, you know, to them it was a job. But, you know, the ultimate thing for me was, like, you hear a little bit of snippets of them trying to do some old songs, and, you know, of course they, they don't remember them, and, yeah. you know, it's like they're trying to do them. But think about if they would have did, like – uh this boy up on the roof, you know, that three-part harmony and pulled it off. Or they would have did, you know, uh, it won't be long. Or Mm -hmm. or, or something from those early days to see. Because when you, I knew the Beatles from 1964 and of course 1969. But if you're watching that and you're not a big Beatles fan, you wouldn't even know it's the same guys. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, So the music, you know, it, it, it always came down to to the music and them and you know i got new appreciation for songs like um i got a feeling you know i always thought that was like you know that song's okay but after this film now every day i get up singing that song in my head it's like i I love it even more now i always love don't let me down and uh for your blue those were my favorite you know and honestly let it be was never one of my favorite beetle albums no well the rooftop yeah, go ahead. The rooftop is what made it my favorite album, seeing them play live. It after watching it, I went back. Yeah, Let It Be was never one of my favorite albums. I liked I liked the more obscure songs off it, uh, like you said. Um, but after watching that, I went back and I started listening to Let It Be Naked, the uh the version that Paul put out where they stripped out all of Phil Spector's production. And uh, they include they they took out um, they took out a song, and they put "Don't Let Me Down" back in. And I'm listening to that, and I I was like I think I I think this is actually better. I I I didn't understand. Maybe maybe you can enlighten us because uh, you've also produced, but um, they had this vision of recording an album live to tape to give it that raw rock and roll feel. Um, And you don't even hear Phil Spector's name at any point. I don't think brought up in the documentary, Um, but then they bring, they bring the songs to Phil and, you know, he adds all of these strings and orchestration over some of them and, and makes them much uh, more saccharine than, than, and I was surprised that they went ahead and put that out because some of it 
so deviated from what they said they wanted to set out to do. Yeah, that well, that's where like the little brother rivalry uh, rivalry came in because um, the whole intention of that record was, as you say, they wanted to get back to the basics, just them, the four of them, no overdubs, no horns, no strings, nothing, just them in the studio creating the way they used to create. Now, I think what had happened was because of all, you know, they were kind of digging into each other a little bit, you know, to razz each other a little bit because Paul was being difficult in the business part of it with Alan Klein. They just kind of said, we don't like this. This doesn't sound good. Let's, let's see what Phil can do. And they, and they gave it to Phil. Right. And then, (laughs) but it's just, um, it's the fact that he, he so drastically changed what, what they set out to do that. Um, well, that was Phil, you know, Phil yeah. was very, he, he wanted everything lush and big, bigger. Everything was always had to be bigger for Phil. Right. That was great in the early sixties and it was breakthrough with the wrecking crew and everything. I mean, he was a genius when it came to that, to that, but this was 1969 and it's not what they wanted. They wanted to be a live rock and roll band like that, what they were. So Phil came in and, you know, they, they kind of just said, here, do what you want with it. I, I'm pretty sure that that's what happened. And they let Phil just do what he wanted. And they didn't care because Paul didn't even hear it till it came out. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and Phil did a lot of the same things on the All Things Must Pass album, <clears throat> especially with uh, the song Wawa. George Harrison didn't like the end, uh, the end result of that song and how it came out with almost like the overproduction and there was too much going on. That's right. You couldn't really hear the core musicians in that. Uh, but yeah, that's Phil Spector. Yeah. Well, whatever happened to him? You never hear his name anymore. Oh, yeah. What, what is up with that guy? <laughs> uh, God rest his soul. Uh, the devil keep him, give him a blanket every once in a while. I don't know. <laughs> um, You know what, though? There was something I was thinking about. Like, there was something maybe kind of sublime in uh in them passing on on george's songs because by the time he gets around to recording all things must pass it's just it's just this masterpiece that that he's been sitting on and if he had piecemealed them through the years over over various beatles albums you wouldn't have gotten that yeah and you know it's funny too uh like Phil went on to, to, to produce All Things Must Pass. Um, and then he went on to produce John's first record. And then if you think about it, John's first record is so raw. It's only him, Ringo, and Klaus Vormann. And, you know, and then, of course, sprinkling a little of uh, Phil Spector's strings and, and arrangements. But it's, it's so raw. So he kind of like, he was against it being so raw for let it be, but then he really, he went back to his album being so raw and, you know, and Phil Spector involved in, in, in those records as well. I mean, I think like I had said before, I, I, I think it was just a dig to get back at Paul because he was being so difficult at the time. And they were kind of just knew that that would have 
annoy him and drive him crazy. So they just let Phil do whatever he wanted with, with those. Because <laughs> they, you know, let it be and Long and Winding Road, as beautiful as those songs are, them what Paul McCartney songs yeah. and Beatles songs. Yeah. You know, so that's the ones that, you know, Phil really, you know, put the choir and put the whole, you know, made it so dramatic, especially the Long and Winding Road. So I think that, you know, they, unfortunately, you can't take things back, but I think John and, and, and George and, you know, Ringo probably just, knowing Ringo, he probably said, I don't think this is a good idea. Paul's not going to like this, but, you know, I think they just wanted to antagonize Paul a little bit. Yeah. And, and they, they probably each had one foot out the door at that <laughs> oh, yeah. point and, you know, didn't care, but it is after watching, you know, 10 hours of, of them obsessing over the making of this record and then to, uh, to just deviate so far from, from what they'd set out to do. I mean, it's the, the final album's a weird mix because they, they do include, uh, some of those live to tape takes. Yeah. So it's it's like this weird mix of raw rock and then, you know, Phil Spector, Wallace sound. Um, I was also the, the other takeaway that I had from this was just it gave me a whole new respect for Paul. Like, even though you, you, he was you could tell he was kind of a pain in the ass. Nobody else wanted to steer the ship. So he, he felt like he had to. And he was clearly going through some kind of um creative explosion you know like stuff seemed like it was just pouring out of him and um it it definitely it gave me it gave me a whole new respect for him um and actually well, yeah to see yeah i agree and i i said that you know i give credit to paul for taking the reins because you know everybody was into their own things and Paul was the only one who wanted to get them back in the studio, get them working, doing something. So it would have never happened. So somebody, good thing that he did take the, the lead because, you know, it, it wouldn't have happened. It may not have happened if he didn't, you know, and it certainly wouldn't have happened in those 17 days or whatever, you know, that short period of time, whatever it was. But to see Paul, you know, strumming chords on his bass had to be, you know, just waiting for John to come and get back just kind of happens right at that moment. No one even knows it's going to be get back, but he starts hitting chords as if he's playing a guitar and, and, and that becomes get back. I mean, so he had, you know, he, 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 he had his ideas and he was re ready to go, but to see that genius and then to see, John, who was always tagged as one of the greatest rhythm guitarists of all time, to hit the chords, you know, with his hand as a rhythm at the beginning of Get Back. I mean, I don't think anybody knew that that's how that was done. So now every guitar player in the world is going to be writing songs, going to be playing <laughs> in the studio. They're going to be engineers are going to be yelling at them because they're going to be, you know, I guess there's a technique to it. But. It was amazing to see that that was the rhythm. And the only thing which I have to ask Ringo about when I see him, I they don't show how Get Back, it sounded like the Rolling Stones, if you listen to the early takes. Yes. It sounds like a Rolling Stones song. 
Ringo's playing mainly, he's playing a, a Charlie Watts type beat and he's playing like on the hi-hat and he's playing like a, a typical standard drum beat. Billy Preston comes in. He was still playing that, that drum beat, but then right after that, he went into that famous snare drum shuffle rhythm that really turned Get Back into what it was. They don't show you, and I have to ask them, did Paul say play this? Did John say play this? Um, you know, I, I want to know. That's my biggest question. I want to know how that Get Back beat came about because they don't show that in the film. And that made that song go from one extreme to the other. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's. I thought it's... Uh... I thought the early takes sounded like a Stone song too. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that. And for me, the other thing that occurred to me, the Stones are my favorite band of all time. So I'm watching this and I was thinking it would be so cool to see a documentary like this about the making of one of those classic Stones albums. And then I thought about it some more and I was like, no, it probably actually wouldn't be. It'd probably be boring. It would be... It would be four guys. It would be like Keith nodding off or not even in there. And and you're waiting. If, if, if it was 10 hours, if it was a 10-hour documentary, it would be seven hours of them just wondering where Keith was. You know? <laughs> yeah, so. diff, diff, different policy there of, of, of work. <laughs> that's for sure. So I I realized that um, I, there's, I, there, I don't think they could have made 10 hours of any other band that interesting that that like they were you're just watching four guys on a stool try and try and figure out what they're going to do for the next three weeks I, I i just i don't think there's anybody that that would have been um a more interesting subject and you and you know it's funny um because you bring up the stones like uh, michael lindsey hogg was working on the circus the mm -hmm. rolling stones rock and roll circus yes. you know and john was a part of that yeah um, as was alan klein that's how that whole thing came together but I like throughout the whole movie, he's practicing, you know, how he's going to introduce the Rolling Stones. Yes, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, the bottles, you know, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and that's, that's another movie. That's another uh, film that sat on the shelf for decades. Yeah. Because yeah. the, the Stones weren't happy with, uh, and, with their performance. And John's version of your blues. Which it's amazing. Then, it's amazing. Mitchell <laughs> Clapton, I mean, my God, that's an incredible version. That's, I mean, thank God we have that because we don't have too much stuff of John. So every little thing that we can see and grab is, yeah, is, is heaven. Yeah. And you should see, uh, you could see Clapton's jaw throughout that whole performance. He is so whacked out on amphetamines. His jaw is just like so tight. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. You know, I don't want to promote drugs, but you know, Maybe it wouldn't have been as good if they were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had. Oh, you know, I, I oh, got to go tell you guys. I got to tell you guys something before I forget. Um, I, I saw a preview of a movie that's coming. I actually, I, by the time this airs, I think it'll be out. It, it's um, it's called the Beatles and India, and uh, it's going to be uh, it's on the platform called Britbox, and um. It is incredible, credible, unseen footage of the Beatles when they were in India. And it shows you the culture of India. I mean, the, doc the documentary is, is, is so interesting because it teaches you all about 
India and, and their culture and, and their religion and how far back the Beatles and Indian music and the film clips that they have, you know, there've been other, there've been photos of course, and there, you know, with the Maharishi, there's been uh, another film a couple of years ago, but this is so much unseen footage. That's incredible footage of them. And of course, you know, that's what the white album came, you know, right, right after, right after that. But if anybody, you know, if you're into the Beatles, um, yeah, you have to check out this movie because uh, it's, it's, it's mind blowing. It's another, it's another thing that no one has seen. And it's just, it's just, again, the magic is incredible. Yeah. They, they show a tiny bit of um, Paul's home movie footage from India. Right. And, and get back. Yeah. Because yeah. at one point, uh, my friend Judy brought this up. It was, it was a good thing. I didn't catch the reference. And then she said, after we, we watched the, uh, the India movie, they played on, they did a little concert, like with acoustic guitars and everything on the roof of, 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 of the, uh, of, of one of the buildings. And John makes a reference to that in get back. Actually, he says something about India and the roof, but, it went in one ear and out the other. And then when we saw this film, we were like, oh, that's what he's talking about. Oh, so yeah. it, it's, 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 if you want, if you're a Beatle fan, it, it's definitely something to, to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely want, I mean, this, this, it's funny. It's like every, like once a decade or so, something happens, the Beatles put something out that, that like reinvigorates my, my interest in them. And after after watching this documentary, I've been this documentary made me seek out new Paul McCartney music. Like, I, I don't I don't think I've paid attention to a Paul McCartney album. Uh, I think Flowers in the Dirt was maybe the last Paul McCartney album I can remember owning. Um, but then after watching this, I, I went online. I was like, oh, I wonder what he's been up to. And, and I stumbled on um, the album he made. Uh, during uh, the pandemic, McCartney three, and um, holy shit, is that a good album? I, I from beginning to end, that album is incredible, and it's been in constant rotation. And uh, I would, I never even would have clicked on it if it wasn't for no. <laughs> Don't you didn't like it? Uh, I'm not, not going to comment on that because. Um, uh, if, if he wasn't Paul McCartney, no one would have cared about that record. Unfortunately, um, you know that's just that it's just it's just my opinion. Yeah. I, I think you know he's so brilliant and you know an, an amazing one of the best bass players, if not the best bass player in the world, um, and songwriter, of course. But I don't think that I, I don't think that album. You know he could have. I think he could have made a better album. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. It's just some of it. Um, I was surprised at how hard some of it rocked. Like there was, um, there's a song called sliding on it. That sounds like it could be a Foo Fighters song. Um, well, yeah, because yeah. he's, he was right. hanging out yeah. of course, with the Foo Fighters. Yeah. I love the stuff that he did with Dave. I mean, yes. that yeah. was great stuff and moving a new direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and and I liked I liked Egypt Station, believe it or not. I think that was the first album since Flowers in the Dirt that I actually enjoyed. Yeah. But the last record, I just think I think there was too much buildup 
you know, that goes for anything in life. If you build something up too much, you're always going to be let down oh. because nothing lives up to the expectations that you expect it to be. If it's constantly saying, this is going to be great. This is great. This is great. You know, back in the day, the worst thing you could do if you were in a band is be compared to the Beatles because you knew then it, it was almost like a death sentence. You know, it was like <laughs> you, 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 everybody. The first thing is like they're expecting to hear the Beatles or something better. And then automatically in their brain, it's it. That's it. So it's like, you know, and then and then all the news and press just goes to, you know, all the negativity of not being up to par to the Beatles or, or whatever it's compared to. So I think Paul, you know, he, he, he kind of rushed that album and, and let's face it, everyone was bored during that time. <laughs> so, you know, he was bored just like everyone else and really nothing going on that could inspire him to like really write an incredible song. And he basically just, recorded himself like we all do at home fooling around and because he's paul mccartney you know he he could play every instrument he's great at everything he's a great drummer and you know he was like oh this sounds like it could be an album and then you get people in his head saying oh this should be an album we should put this out this, you know this, this is great this is great this should come out this should be and he puts it out you know and then it went to number one for one week and then it wasn't even in the top 200 the next week so oh, is that true see i see i i had no expectations of i hadn't i hadn't even known that it came out until after i watched this documentary and then i went online i was like i wonder what paul's been up to so wow yeah so when i clicked on it to to play it i had I had no idea that it had been hyped. I had no idea. I hadn't read a review. I literally didn't even know that it had been released. Yeah, and... I didn't know until about five minutes ago when you first brought it up, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Paul. Yeah, sorry, Paul. I'm not going to listen to that one. I'm just going to go back and listen to George Harrison's discography again. Well, you know what? Maybe, maybe now, because Ken, Ken brought it up, maybe now later I, I will listen to it just to give it another chance. Cause you know, I, I, I did try to give it a chance, but I, I never downloaded one song. So what does that say? Yeah. There's uh there's like an eight or nine minute song. That's the centerpiece of the album, a uh, deep, deep feeling. And um, I probably, I, I, I probably listened to that song uh, twice a day since, since I discovered it. Um, He's going to, I have on good authority that Paul listens to this podcast, so I don't know how happy he's going to be with the two of you. Well, Paul, listen, Paul, <laughs> we love you. Uh, your tickets are on sale. You're going on tour. What you, and at this point, I know you don't really care what we think or what anybody thinks. You know, you're a genius at what you do. You, you're one of the greatest entertainers, singer-songwriters, bass players, musicians in the world. So... Who cares what we think? <laughs> exactly. I, saw, I saw that he named his tour Got Back, yeah, which I was like, uh, slow down, pal. You're Sir yeah, Paul. You're you not know, Sir Mix-a-Lot. Like, well, you see, this is, this is the thing about Paul. You know, Paul is the entertainer. You know, he's a musical genius. There's no doubt about that. He's Paul is a musical genius. And, you know, he was the cute Beatles. So, of course, all the girls you know, still in love with him. They still think they're going to marry him. You know, it, it's, you know, he, he still has that magic 
Um, but he's the one who, you know, will promote anything and he'll get out there and put his promotional hat on and make sure that, you know, like you say, got back now. I mean, really, but you know, uh, it's Paul, you know, and, and that's, that's personality wise. That, that was their personalities. Now, you know, spiritual wise, you know, Paul, Paul influenced me as a musician, but spiritual wise and, you know, words of wisdom from, from his own words, you know, it was always John and George who was spreading the message of, of peace and love. And of course, Ringo carries on that tradition and everybody loves Ringo because he's just so down to earth. He's one of the coolest people on the planet, you know? Um, but really let's face it, you know, John and George, unfortunately the two most spiritual Beatles who, who were the closest to, God-like figures, dare I say it, you know, are no longer here, you know, which shows me that, you know, they came here, did what they had to do and, and, and move on, you know, and the two entertainers are here keeping everybody happy, keeping the Beatles alive, still going on tour. Ringo's going on tour. I actually love his show much better because he, you know, the, the, the all-stars, it's just a great, it's just a great, yeah, he gets, and, and I've seen, uh, and I saw this on Wikipedia. So forgive me if I got this wrong, but I, I saw that you've actually performed with Ringo's all-star band. Uh, yes, I, I was blessed and, and had the honor to sit in two times in the, in the course of, uh, three, four years, two different occasions, um, here in New York, where I, I got to play the encore playing percussion with Ringo and the All-Stars, oh, which so cool. You know, I've been I've, I've been I know Ringo for 30 years, but I've been his friend probably for 25 years. And in the last 15 years, I've been pretty close to him. Um, and, you know, it it was just a dream come true to, you know, to to to, to think back. But. You know, I, I think because I don't treat him any different and, you know, he afterwards, he the first time I played with him afterwards, he was said, pretty cool to play with me, huh? I go, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, but Todd Rudgren, uh, Greg Rowley, I mean, everybody that I grew up with was also on that stage. So I was like, you know, it was pretty cool to play, you know, to play with them too. So, you know, he laughed and, you know, Steve Lukert is one of my favorite guitar players of all time. So. You know, I grew up on Toto and Jeff Beccaro. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to be on stage. But then when Mark Rivera said, you know, the second time he was at the show, Mark, you know, Mark Rivera, the great Mark Rivera, um, you know, he said, you're coming up, right? And I was like, no. He was like, yeah, come up for the encore. And I was like, no way. I, he was like, just come up. And I was like, no way. I said, you got to ask Ringo if it's OK, because I wasn't just going to get up on, you know, walk out on stage and then. He went to ask Ringo and he came back and he said, Ringo said, of course. And I was like, wow. Oh, that's so, do you remember, do you remember what songs you played? Uh, well, the encore, a little help from my friends and to give peace a chance. Oh, wow. That's as, as, as a kid growing up on the Beatles, you, I'm, I'm guessing. In a, well, you in know, a, I was playing percussion. Um, the second time I did it, I probably could have sat at the drums and played double drums with Greg, but I, di- I didn't want to push it. Um, I have played Ringo's drums at Soundcheck, you know, at, at Jones Beach and, um, 
you know, Elizabeth Freud has been a big, big part of, of and Jeff Chonis of, you know, me being so close to, to Ringo as well. And um, it, 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 it was, I tried not to think about it, you know, in, in one sense, I felt, yeah, I belong here, you know, because this is what I did my whole life. You right. know, I, 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 I played in a band, I played music. So, and then on the other hand, if I started to think, wow, I'm on stage with Ringo, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to, I, I would have looked like I was in a daze and I, 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 I don't <laughs> know what I would have did. I would have knocked over a microphone stand or, you know, so it just, it just worked out that it, it, it just happened, you know, spontaneously at the last minute. It, it was Father's Day. I, I, you know, I wished him a happy Father's Day. And uh, Chasm Sultan was, because we were in Staten Island for that first one, he was going to come up and play percussion. And then I said to, to Ringo, oh, I, I would have did that. So, uh, and he said, too late, Chasm is doing it. And then uh, I said, happy Father's Day to him. I hugged him and then I was going back to my seat. And on the way back, Somebody came up to me and said, not even two minutes, and said, Ringo said, be on stage. When you hear photograph, stage left, uh, Chasm's going to play guitar and sing up front, and you're going to play percussion. Oh, and he walked wow. away. And I kind of looked around like I was being punked. <laughs> I, I, I really thought, I, I said, you know, he's busting, he's busting my balls. He, he's being such a ball buster right now. And I went over to Jeff Jonas, and I go, Somebody came over to me and said, you know, I'm going to play percussion Ringo that, you know, and could that be true? And he goes, if that's what the boss said, that's what the boss wants. And I was like, okay. And I went to my seat. I sat there. Photograph came on. I went to stage left. I went up. The bodyguard said, who are you? Where are you going? I said, uh, I'm supposed to play with Ringo for the encore. And they said, what's your name? I said, my name. He came back two seconds. He opened the curtain. Next thing I know, I was on stage. Oh, my Holy God. Holy shit. Could you imagine if they were punking you, like you walked out and Ringo stopped the show and was like, what the fuck are you doing here? Exactly. <laughs> just turned around. I was like, I don't ever want to see you again. You know what? More, more people would have seen it then. <laughs> Why are you ruining and my you know, Father's Day? And you know, it's funny. It's like at one point, somebody did film it. And my cousin happened to be... I, First of all, half of my uh, relatives were in the in, in the audience oh, wow. in Staten Island. So I had people calling me from the stage, and they told me to come down and do the bow. And Ringo's already gone. After he duck, comes back out for give peace a chance, while the band's in the middle of that, he's already in the car, and then he's gone. So when they asked me to come down and do the bow with them, I that really blew my mind. Oh, so wow. we went we went down to do the bow, and all my relatives are in the audience. They're all calling me. Everybody's calling my name. And, I think Greg Rowley, he, he, he leaned over to me and he goes, wow, you have a lot of fans here. And I was like, just, just relatives, just friends and, and relatives. Um, you, you mentioned Todd Rundgren. Do, do you remember who else was in that version of the All-Stars? Uh, that was Colin Hay. It was everybody that, that's still in the band except for Hamish Stewart. Mm -hmm. So funny thing was the second time I did it here in New York at the pier, beautiful venue. Um, that was when that Mark got me to come out. So Mark came out and I came out and Hamish Stewart was in the band at the time. Now, going back quickly, I met Average White Band and Steve Ferroni when, when I was 14 years old because um, I, we, my band Mantis was the house band up at the Catskills um, back in the day in the, in the, in the mid 70s. 
And the uh, person, Frank Tabino, I'll never forget his name. He ran Atlantic Recording Studios. Anyway, it was a family resort type thing and schools came up for the weekend. We were the house band for a few years up there. So he came up, he loved the band. And then he found out, I found out that he was, he ran Atlantic Records Studios. So I, I friended him, we stayed friends. And then he said, if you ever want to come by the studio. So I used to play hooky and I used to go into the city, go to Manny's, go to Record Plant. Um, so I actually went to, to Atlantic and he let me sit in and watch Average White Band record with Arif Mardin. And I didn't know who Arif Mardin was or Emmett Erigan or anybody. Mm -hmm. And they told me, sit in the corner, don't say a word. And that's when I met Steve Ferroni and Hamish. So, and then I haven't seen Hamish, you know, I saw him one time maybe since then. And when I saw him that night and, and we were talking about that. And then when I was on stage, I mean, I love Ringo, of course, but I had already been on stage with Ringo one time and it was still a thrill. But when I looked at Hamish and he looked back at me and winked, to me, that was such a special, magical moment for me because here I was now, Hamish has, has been, you know, and of course he would talk about Flowers in the Dirt. He was on the Paul McCartney. That was my favorite period of Paul McCartney because Hamish is one of the greatest singers in the world great rhythm guitar player, fantastic bass player, really good songwriter. So I, you know, that to me was so magical to have, to look at him. I'm on stage with the all-stars and look at him and have him wink at me while I'm on stage with them. After all that, you know, since I'm 14 yeah, years old now, before, I mean, it's to me, that was like, wow. That's some that, cool full circle shit. Yeah, that, that 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 was that that was pretty cool. We had um we had Richard Marks on the show a while ago, and he he was talking about his stint in Ringo's All Star Band, and yep. he he said he said it's one of his favorite tours that he ever did. That that he you know he kept doing the same thing, looking around the stage and being like, oh, I can't believe that's Joe Walsh, you know, like <laughs> right, right. I, I no, absolutely. I mean. You know, David Fishoff, who runs the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, he managed Ringo back in the day. And uh, he put that, you know, it was his idea to put that all-star tour together. And um, it, it was genius. I mean, it, it, you know, it, 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 was, it was genius because it's like going to see six, seven concerts at one yeah. show. And who would say no to be in that band? You know, and you have to be in the band. You have to have a hit and you have, you know one or two hits and you have to, you know, so everybody that's been in that band on their own, a lot of people are such big fans. I was a fan of just about everybody. You know, I tease Ringo sometimes that, Oh, the same band again, as much as I love all those guys, it's like <laughs> seven years now. It's the same songs, the same band, uh, you know, and Ringo tells me, shut up. We it's, it's very easy. We all get along and that's the way it is. But you know, it's great. You know, it, it's still a great show. And, and, you know, anybody who sees it, it's just a good, fun time. It's like, it, you know, and you know every single song that's being done. Yeah. And to see Ringo, you know, when I first went, to see Ringo playing like a Richard Mark song, you know, to see Ringo playing with Felix Cavallari and, uh, or, or, or uh, Burton Cummings and, uh, and Randy Bach playing, you know, a guess who song. Mm -hmm. I mean, to see Ringo playing drums with Mark Farner, 
you know, it, it to me, that's just as exciting as as him playing Beatles songs. You know, it, it's just it's just a great it was a great concept. And obviously, to this day, it's, it still does well. And I know Ringo's dying to get back out there on the road. I mean, he really wants to get out there because that that's what he loves to do. And, you know, hopefully this year it'll happen because, uh, you know, it, it's just a great show. Yeah. So Paul and Ringo, you know. They're out there doing their thing. Everybody, you know, if you haven't seen them, now's your chance to go see them, especially after watching the movie. It's a whole different generation. That's what I love about it. You know, the younger generation, like Max's generation, and, you know, the, the, the even younger, you know, um, it, it's, it's incredible that people still appreciate them and they're still relevant. And, it doesn't sound old. It's not like it sounds like it's old music. I mean, I'll listen to the Beatles channel and, you know, people be in the car with me and they say, come on with the Beatles, enough. And I'm like, <laughs> I can't turn off this song. <laughs> then the next song comes on. Oh, yeah, you got to wait till this song's over. You know, you know, certain songs, I, you know, like, you know, uh, Maxwell Silverhammer and, uh, you know, there's certain songs I, I, I don't care if I, you know, if I hear them for the next 10 years, but, most Beatles songs, 95% in them, no matter how many times you hear them, it just puts you in a great mood. Yes. Yeah. And there's something about them. There's something about, especially the early stuff that was so simple that, that um, kids love it, which I yeah. think is why you just have generation after generation. Um, I, I would trick my, I tricked my daughter in, into loving them. I mean, she, she's six now, but when she was like three or four, the only band she cared about was the Wiggles. <laughs> so I would play the Beatles. She would tell me she hates it. And I would be like, oh, this is the Wiggles new album. And then I would tell, you know, as soon as she heard it was the Wiggles, she would actually stop and listen. So it got confusing for a bit because we get in the car. She'd be like, put on the Wiggles. And then I'd like switch to the Beatles channel. <laughs> and now she hates she she uh she hates anything I like, you know, but we she agrees with me on the Beatles, which which is cool. Um so Max, what 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 was the first uh Beatles song you ever heard? Uh the first Beatles song I ever heard was probably I'd have to say when I was younger, I have a clear memory of listening to I Want to Hold Your Hand uh, just from when I was like really young. But when I got older, I remember I got that when I was in high school, I think it was, was when the Beatles one CD mm -hmm. came out mm -hmm. or had all their number one hits. And I remember listening to that. My I think it was either my freshman or sophomore year of high school. And like that was when I really started getting into music like. I started listening to the Beatles, Bob Dylan, Beach Boys. I had always heard those bands on the peripherals, like in my dad's car and everything. But when I got that CD, that was when I really started taking a deep dive into it. And I remember just hearing something and being like, oh, my God, this is the greatest song ever written. It's so beautiful. And then, you know, as I got older and obviously with uh, like downloading programs and everything, I download everything not necessarily legally or anything like that, but, uh, you know, through LimeWire, I listen to uh, it, just everything they ever made. And then you start listening to all like the original demo version of something, which is very stripped down. And I actually prefer it to the studio uh, version 
where it's just George Harrison playing on an electric guitar, but it's not, there's no um, sort of like any effects on the guitar at all. It's mm-hmm. very stripped down and that's great. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just incredible. And now I always just wind up circling back to the Beatles whenever I'm in my car or, if, you know, it's just, I'm always putting on Rubber Soul or I'm putting on Revolver, which is my favorite album. But it's funny how like, you know, you're saying it's, they're a timeless band because you can listen to their early stuff. And when you think about it, they were young when they were recording that. And things were kind of different as far as like the demographics of teenagers back then. So it was very like innocent and pure music with some sort of like underlying themes to it. Uh, But then as it got old, like as they got older, their music started to change. And I think that's why so many generations can listen to different eras of the Beatles and connect to it. So when you're listening to songs from those early albums, it's very simple love songs of when you're a kid and then you get on, you know, older and it's a little more psychedelic or it's got deeper themes to it. And it just hits everybody. And there's a lot of songs that I won't turn off ever. The only song I will say that I absolutely despise by the Beatles is Yellow Submarine. I cannot listen to that song (laughs) ever. If it comes on, I turn it off. When I listen to that album, I turn it off. I just can't can't take it. Because that is on Revolver, I think, right? No, that's on Yellow Submarine. The soundtrack to, uh, to Yellow Submarine. I thought it was although, on a, the British, yeah, the British. It might be on one of either the British. It is version. on Revolver, yeah. Yeah, it might be on. Yeah, that's right. On uh, either on the British or the American version, I forget. Yeah, and I can't, I can't listen to that song. And I love Revolver; it's my favorite Beatles album. But that one, I just will not <laughs> listen to. It's funny. Yellow Submarine's my earliest memory of the Beatles. My my dad used to have the movie on a VHS. And he would he would ride his exercise bike and put it on the TV for me. So I well he he would ride his bike and he would put it in. And I remember as a kid thinking like, oh, this is so cool. And these songs are so great. But also, my dad is so cool that he likes cartoons. But, <laughs> but now, like as an adult, I'm like, oh, he was probably just stoned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah billy did you have a favorite beetle growing up was it was it always like ringo because you were a percussionist or was did you know you know it's funny because um i wanted to be a different beetle every day yeah (laughs) every day every day i wanted to be a a different beetle um ringo of course you know i i gravitated towards because of the you know i became a drummer um but I, 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 every day I wanted to be a different Beatle. So, you know, um, I, I never really had a, a, like a favorite Beatle. Um, so, uh, you know, but I did start playing music because of the Beatles. I mean, I started playing drums because of Ringo and then I became a, I wanted to be a, a songwriter and, and a, a, what you would call a real musician uh, you know, from all from the group itself, and then yeah. being in a group—that's what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to be in a band, and then later on go on and do studio work. And fortunately, you know, that that worked out for me. You know, that's that's exactly what it was. I was always in a band my whole life with other guys that are like brothers to me. We all grew up together. We're still friends to this day. Actually, 
uh, in May, my bass player, Kaz, passed away. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, after, yeah, since, I mean, we were, he was my bass player and we were friends since we were 14 years old. So, uh. you know, we, we did get to perform uh, right before he passed and thank God somebody got it on film. Um, we cut a couple of new tracks that we were going to do, um, but he battled cancer for four years and, you know, he lost his battle. So, you know, and then when the band, we never broke up. Everybody just, as we got older, went different ways. And that's when I started doing studio work. And, uh, you know, I, I did tons of studio work. And then when I turned 40, I got, you know, the job at Modern Drama Magazine as a, as an editor. Um, and then, um, you know, now these days, I, you know, I, I starting to go back to my roots of being known more as a musician and, and a player. Mm -hmm. At, you know, than a journalist, because I, I, I never really was a journalist. I don't want to be a journalist. I get in trouble for saying this all the time. You know, it's basically me just interviewing my friends and, you know, talking to them, you know, and, and letting, you know, other drummers and, and musicians know what's going on in their lives. But, you know, my whole thing was, you know, I'm, I'm a musician and the Beatles are a big part of why. The first, first time I ever met Ringo, I said, to, I blamed him kind of for me being a, a, a drummer. And he looked at me and he goes, are you any good? <laughs> and I go, well, I guess I had, a, I was in a band. We got a few records, uh, three top 10 dance records. And, uh, you know, I toured and I did the whole thing. He goes, well, then I did my job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Um, we had, we had your buddy uh, Rick Murata on. Uh, a couple oh, days I ago love, love he was but he was easily one of the best interviews uh he's I, so I, funny i mean you know of course well obviously everybody loves raymond he did the theme song you know he he, he he's so funny he used to host the groove night out at nam for yamaha with joe testa and you know he, he's one of the funniest guys i know and uh yeah, he, i he, saw him a couple of summers ago when COVID was on its break at in uh, Martha's Vineyard, where he, he has a place. Um, and uh, I miss him because, you know, no one's getting to see anybody and it's, it's, it's been crazy, but I love Rick. Yeah. Well, he said he's going to be out there this summer again, playing with his brother. He said, Bill Murray crashes those gigs a lot. So yeah. 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 I'll, it, I, I, I said, well, you're, you should probably expect to see me in Martha's Vineyard then. Did you, uh, did he tell you, did he happen to tell the story about when he played on John Lennon? Cause you know, he, I think he's on mind games. Is it, it, here's, here's the kind of career this dude had. I asked him, so what John Lennon album did you play on? And he goes, I, I think it was double fantasy. I was like, no, you, you don't it know. Double, no, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. double, it wasn't <laughs> he didn't even know. I, I think it was mind games, but the, the thing was, yeah, no. Well, that's that's when you know you're a busy working yes. musician yeah. because you. Yeah, sometimes you know I'll hear a song on the radio and I go, "Oh, this that's my drums," you know, <laughs> and, you know, because you, you don't know what's gonna happen when you're doing studio work, and especially him, he did so much great stuff. But um, when he was in the studio, he, he was he was standing in the studio and John walked in, and it was the first time they met John, and John told him to go get something. Because he had an S, Rick had an SRR shirt on, which is a studio rental here in New York. Mm -hmm. Well, they're all over, but 
John thought he worked for the, the studio rental place. <laughs> and he was telling Rick to go get him something because he needed something. And and the, I forgot, who, you know, whoever was producing was like, no, that's Rick Murata. He's playing drums on the record. And, you know, and in those days, you know, John called people, you know, the drummer. Even even on, with Andy Newmark on Double Fantasy, that's who played on Double Fantasy, Andy Newmark. Um, <laughs> you know, he would call him the drummer for, for the longest time because even with Ringo, Ringo didn't know my name for the first 10 years that, that he would see me. He would know my face, but he'd call me Mr. Rock and Roll. He'd call me Fancy Hair. Um, <laughs> he only had something that I knew that he didn't know my name, but he knew, who, you know, kind of was getting to know who I was. And let's face it, you know, they meet so many people. It's like, it's impossible. But yeah, so that's the story with Rick, Rick Marotta and the, the John Lennon story. It's, it's that's so funny. well, maybe, uh, maybe you can huddle up with him, uh, next time when we have him on again and, and let him know about his career. <laughs> because... <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny when I, uh, the last piece I did for him, the last feature I did on him in modern drama, we went over stuff and it was, had to be like, uh, we were talking about songs of, of 1970, I think it was, or 19, whatever it was, whatever year theme that, that issue was. And he kept saying, did I do that that year? I was like, that's what it says here. I mean, like, this is why I want to talk to you about it. And he was like, yeah, I don't think that's right. I don't think that was that year. And then we, we would go back and forth. And now nah, he, he, he's a great drummer. Really, I mean, super down to earth and funny. I mean, really I hope he was funny on your show. He he was he was hilarious. He he was he was genuinely um one of he, I thought he was one of the best interviews uh that that we've had. Um Yeah, he he Rick Rick is great. And I we love, we I didn't even Rick. we didn't even scratch the surface. I I mean I feel the same with you like we've been talking about the Beatles uh this whole time so I I hope you'll come back on some point and and we could focus more on your career. But I feel like we barely scratched the surface with uh, with Rick. Well, you know, you know, and, 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 you know, when you do these podcasts, you can't go on forever because the attention span of people, they just won't watch it. You know, yeah. if it's too long. They just, they just won't watch it. But, um, you know, it, it, it's I, I thank you guys, you know, for, for even and, and Laurie for recommending me. And, uh, you know, the 12 drummers drumming. I felt so good to be a part of that. You know, we race. A, a nice amount of money for the veterans. Yes. Uh, yeah. That the was... foundation with Rick Allen and mm -hmm. his wife, Lauren. So, um, you know, that's how things go around. Um, you know, so, so thank you for even uh, thinking of me and for Lori bringing me up because, yeah. you know, when, like I said at the beginning, when you talk about the Beatles, you know, it, it, that youthfulness comes right out again. Everybody gets, you know, you, you get excited still and, you know, it's a, it's a great thing, you know, because we need things to keep everybody happy. I mean, I don't want to get, you know, into it, but, you know, this morning I woke up to news that I, I, I can't, you know, yeah. I just, I, I can't believe, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to get into politics as I hate politics, but I just can't believe we still live in a world where people do not understand that all people want to do is be happy and love each other and live in a peaceful world. But obviously there's people who don't care about that. You know, yeah. they're greedy, they're, you know, they're evil. And it's a shame after all this time, 
it's really a shame. So I hope we get this show up before the end of the world. <laughs> well, <laughs> if the world's if the world's still here by Monday, we'll be uh, we'll be fine. Uh, last question, Rick, before I let you, uh, Billy. I'm sorry. Last question before I let you out of here. Um, were you surprised when Paul married a one-legged lady? No, you don't have to. <laughs> you don't. You don't have to answer that. That's just me being a dick. All right, we we can end on this. I heard. Um, just real quick, tell me your thoughts. First off, I don't even know if this is true. It's just a thing that I'd heard. And then when we had Rick on, he he mentioned it. Um, there was a point during the White Album where Ringo quit, and then there was talks because Keith Moon was in a lot of trouble with the who at that point. And I can't remember where I read this. It may have actually been in a Keith Moon biography, but I read that there was talks of the two bands swapping drummers. Like Ringo was going to go to the who and Keith Moon was going to go to the Beatles. Have Have you ever heard that? Um, I, I no, I can't actually say I, I, I have. It doesn't even sound familiar to me. I know that they were friends because mm-hmm. obviously Keith right, is yeah. uh, Keith taught Zach, Zach how to play. But um, you know that would have never worked. Ringo could have never been in the Who, and Keith could have ne- never <laughs> yeah. been in the Beatles. So right. I don't. I, you know, maybe somebody said it off the cuff, and you know what it's like. Once somebody says something, it goes up online, and then it becomes news, and you know. But I don't I don't I don't think that was that was ever true. But when Ringo did quit, I have to say, and I hate to admit it, one of my favorite drums drumming songs is Dear Prudence. Mm -hmm. And that's Paul playing drums, you know, and not until maybe 20 years ago did people know that. You know, everybody just assumed it was Ringo. And then I asked Giles Martin one time, did you ever talk to dad um, about the recording of that? Like, I know they were Ringo's drums because obviously they sound, you know, the drums were set up. So they were Ringo's drums. But did you, you know, I asked Giles, did you ever talk to dad about that? You know, did he hear Ringo? Did Ringo play that first? And then when he quit, Paul just, you know, copied what Ringo put. And he said that he did speak to his dad. And as far as he knew, Paul came up with that. They came up with that and recorded that well after Ringo was gone. And Ringo never even heard that song. So that was pretty incredible, you know, that that Paul sounded so much like Ringo on on that. I mean, you know what? That's that's an interesting point because they were a studio band you know they they'd retired from from live uh they'd retired from touring at that point so it's like maybe paul could have been the drummer i he like he really is when you watch get back you he really is a fantastic drummer which i i mean i heard that he played but i never knew just how good but as long as they were in the studio i mean he's putting out these albums where he plays every single instrument anyway as long as they were in the studio, maybe they would have just uh, become a trio. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, because he did back in the USSR. I mean, uh, you know, he, he has played drums before. And then, of course, on his first solo album, you know, Maybe I'm Amazed and everything, yeah. all those songs, he's playing drums. And to me, Maybe I'm Amazed would have been a fantastic Beatles. Yes. See, yeah. like, there's certain songs, like I said, Let It Be and Long and Winding Road, those sound like more like Paul songs and Beatles songs. Maybe I'm amazed to me always sounded like that could have been more of a Beatles song mm-hmm. than a Paul song. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great same song. Same thing with same thing with woman. 
you know, the John Lennon song. To me, that could have been a Beatles song. Yes. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, most of uh, most of all things could pass could have been good Beatles songs. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Billy, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I hope you had fun. Um, is how how can people find you if they wanted? Do you have social uh, media? I have I have a couple of pages on Facebook. Um, there's a music page that's on there. It's hard to get people to go to. You get me on Instagram. Um, my music page because my personal page is kind of full, and uh, I kind I kind of keep that to people that that I know. I don't want to reach mm-hmm. my five thousand limit. But I, I do. There is a music page that I have uh, on Facebook and Instagram. You can get me on, you know, on Instagram, and uh, or, or you know, you could just Google. You, you know, you can find anybody these days. That's the good <laughs> and bad part of uh, of of the the world wide web. <laughs> <laughs> Max, where can people find you? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Max Antonucci uh, and. That's about it. I'm in Spain right now. I have some gigs coming up uh, here in Amsterdam the next oh, that's so few cool. weeks. So follow me on Instagram and uh, you'll see all my travels. All Max, right. what's what do you play? Oh, well, I'm a comic. Uh, and then I just casually play guitar in my own home. I would never uh, perform. Oh, so you're, you're on tour as a comedian. Yeah, I'm a comedian. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. I, I cannot I, I'm I'm a decent guitar player. I've been playing since I was a young boy, but I wouldn't I can't play in front of people. I clam up. Uh, well, I, I'm a decent comedian, but I, I can't <laughs> I, you know, I can't I can't go on stage and do stand up. <laughs> not yet anyway. <laughs> I'm not decent at either. <laughs> oh, stop it, Kenny. You're great. Ken, you you are you Ken, you 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 are a good comedian. So you you got your thing happening. <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, and follow us uh, on Twitter at Rock and Roll Pod. And we'll see you next week. Thanks.